Hello and welcome again to Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and this week on the show we've got a whole bunch of science. Uh, Chris is with us and he has brought in a story and what is your story this week, Chris? Well, Stu, you might recall last week I was talking about uh, research misconduct and uh, I said it would be a multi-part story and so this is going to be like part two of this whole kind of thing. But in particular, I want to like, I want to pick up on a couple of points that were raised in the previous um, story. So now we remember I interviewed Professor Ben Moll, um, his estimate that something like 20% of trials um, are false, falsified um, from his experience. Um, now, one of the things he said was um, that this is not across the board, that a lot of it is coming from certain countries. And he did say from some countries in the Middle East. Now, that does sound like a big accusation. Um, he was careful not to single out specific countries there. Um, and, you know, because you do have to be careful how uh, you interpret information like that because you don't, you know, you want to focus on the systemic issues involved. You don't want to be like, start discriminating against you know, individual researchers or whole peoples unnecessarily. Um, but yeah, I thought I would, I would um, look at that question and look at some of what the data actually says about um, how various countries perform in terms of research misconduct um, and which other countries around the world also have some problems as according to the data. And of course, Australia is not perfect in all of this. So I want to make sure that's clear. We may... According to some of this data, we may not look as bad as some others, but we, yes, we do, we do have our own uh, examples of research misconduct and fraud. So I'm going to look at, um, I guess, that and some recent calls to strengthen our own systems. Now, I guess it's one of those things where you have people and institutions, you're almost certain to get corruption at some level, I guess, within those institutions. But it'll be interesting to hear what you have uh, found in your ongoing mm. investigations, Chris. Also, Claire is not with us in the studio right now, but she did an interview with Hazel Richards, who's a paleontologist from Museums Victoria, uh, and they have currently got an exhibition called Triceratops, which is not surprisingly about a triceratops, where they have a almost complete fossilized skeleton of a triceratops on display. It's one of the um, it's one of the best specimens in the world, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, that's right. It's it's you know it's very rare to find a complete skeleton or a complete fossilized skeleton of anything. Um, but this triceratops, it's a, you know it's a hugely popular uh, dinosaur. I think it's one of the ones that sort of you know gets people's imaginations fired up, uh, just because it is such an odd looking creature i guess but hazel talks to her about the behind the scenes goings on of what it takes to get a fossil like this and have it available for display and also her work using digital cat scans and 3d imaging to look inside the bones and see some more different ways of looking at these fossils and what they can actually tell us so yeah that will be coming up later in the show uh so stay tuned Right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and yeah, I am following up on some questions, I guess, that came out of my part one of my investigation into research misconduct around the world and in Australia, 
And yeah, we're looking at, I guess, which countries, I suppose, in the world may um, have more of a problem with um, research misconduct than others. Now, a lot of the, so there's one particular study that a lot of people quote in this field, and this is from um, analysis of trials submitted to the journal Anesthesia, and where they found that, this one only found like 14% of the trials had, had false data. So it's not quite the 20% figure that um, Ben Mull was claiming. So is this is this data that they've just completely made up or have they fudged it somehow? Or is it, you know, what, what's the what's the extent of the the falsification of the data there? I guess this is some indications of some falsified data. Um, so yeah, 14% had some false data. 8% basically were, looked like they were fully, what they call zombie trials, as in completely untrustworthy. A completely worthless data. Um, there's been some further analysis of individual patient data um, to see the extent of of the issue, and yeah, we can tell, I guess, by looking at at that, the, the, basically the data behind the trials to see exactly how how bad they are. And yes, a lot of it is completely completely falsified from 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 looking at the data. It's it very hard to be. I suppose you know it, it comes back to I guess the chat that you had with Gideon Myrowitz Katz, who we'll get onto eventually, and how they determine you know, whether the data is falsified and they look for signs of, you know, impossible figures or figures that don't add up, that sort of thing. There are statistical analysis techniques you can use to, to sort of apply and go, yeah, this these numbers are not realistic. They don't fall within the range of what you'd expect to find in a trial and that sort of thing. Yeah. But in this in this analysis of these particular ones, the, um, the worst performing countries were Egypt and Iran. Um, had uh, I think 100% of the studies from Egypt and 75% of the studies from Iran had falsified data, um, followed by India, China, Turkey, South Korea, and Japan. So a bit of a mixed bag there. Um, you know, you've got you've got um, some countries, I suppose you could say, in the developing world, and then you've got you know countries like South Korea and Japan, which um, have had some high-profile fraud cases. Uh, but you know, it shows that this is a fairly widespread issue. Well, yeah, there was there was that story. I think we covered it on the show of uh, a Japanese scientist who claimed that they could make uh, stem cells from any kind of cell just by. I think they said they just soaked them in water or something like that. So there's like some pretty mm. blatant uh, fraud going on in some places, but yeah. obviously it's not all that that obvious or even easily that easily testable but it is it is interesting to to look at yeah where where, where this stuff is coming from um the uh we can also compare it with um the analysis that gideon Myers cats our friend did of the ivermectin trials which are known to be quite problematic and again similar kind of countries come up in you know the studies came from similar countries um the, with the exception that there were a few from South America as well, where it's just South America did have some widespread use of ivermectin, so it's perhaps not surprising there. But yeah, it is interesting that um, the fraudulent studies were from um, yeah countries I guess feature in the the list of countries that are sources of fraudulent studies. So there was a similar analysis that was done by the um, the website Retraction Watch. Um, now they've been tracking as the name was just retractions of papers since 2010. Um, and in 2018, they published an article in the journal Science where they looked at how things were looking across the world. And they did um, a bit of analysis of the countries with the highest retraction rates. Uh, and this is quite illuminating because, uh, you know, you do get, uh, I suppose, a lot of the same similar offenders. I mean, Iran was the, the top country um, with, um, I guess, the rate of retractions per, 
um, according to the number of papers that produced by it. Um, but I suppose the enlightening one is their second top country, which was Romania. Did Romania come up on the on the other list, or is this is this their 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 debut appearance? Well, no, they didn't because, and this is the thing because um, what we're talking about here is retractions of papers. So the other one was basically looking at submitted papers, trying to analyze the data from the papers and work out whether they're fraudulent. This is where there is actual retractions, and the reason Romania features is because there is a group of researchers there who've taken on themselves to highlight misconduct. Um, they call themselves, what is it, the project dedicated to arrest of the name decline of the Romanian achievement. It's the, an acronym that spells Pandora. Um, right. So, yeah. They basically exposing the misconduct and then um, has believed to have led to a lot of these retractions, which shows that um, the retractions, which is kind of only really a fraction of the, the, the fraud and misconduct out there, they are going to be higher when you look for them, which you can turn it around the other way and say, if you don't look, uh, then your attractions are lower, which means, which is where you run into problems because for institutions then in particular, there is a bit of incentive not to look for problems. Yeah. There's not much reward for investigating really, if you, if you're going to look bad when you find it. Exactly. And this is where we come to, I guess, what's happening in Australia. Um, now, Australia did not feature in any of these, uh, highly in these leaderboards. Um, and looking at the analysis of papers in the Journal Anesthesia, there were no Australian papers identified as being falsified. But yeah, look, we, we do have, still have misconduct cases. And, you know, it's real science. It does actually have an effect in the real world. So the most recent high-profile example was um, immunizo- sorry, immunologist Mark Smythe. Now, he's, he uh, is a member of the Australian Academy of Science. Their website calls him the most highly cited immunologist in Australia, uh, recognised for his significant contributions to tumour immunology. So basically finding ways to treat cancer with immunotherapy. However, he's had papers retracted. One of his papers in Nature was retracted in 2006 due to issues like uh, duplication of figures. So this is another way that people find, um, I guess, fraud in papers is saying when you find um, figures, you know, diagrams or photos mysteriously duplicated. Um, that's quite a common one and certain people who have taken on the field to, to search for these kind of duplications and it's actually very widespread. 2015 he had um, a paper from in the, the Journal of Clinical Investigation. They issued what Retraction Watch called a mega correction. So they issued like multiple corrections to one of his papers. So there's been a lot going on with him. He has since resigned from his employer, the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, Berghofer, and they have referred him to that state's crime and corruption commission. So yeah, look, like I said, there's no indication that any patients were harmed by any of this. These, uh, these retracted studies were studies in mice, but um, they found that he has seriously breached codes on research conduct, but also the use of animals in research. Like if you are conducting fraudulent studies and using animals for them, then it's not exactly appropriate use of animals in research. No, that's right. And you've got, you know, to get to do any kind of research involving animals, you have to get ethics approval. That's right. If you're not doing what you said you were going to do, you're breaching your approval and therefore probably being unethical automatically, really. Yeah. And so it's, it's things like this that have led to um, some eminent scientists in a country to, to call for a... Uh, establishment of a national office of research integrity. So similar to like we have a sports integrity body 
saying, you know, if we have you know, one for sports, why don't we have one for scientific research? Because our current system basically require, relies, again, on institutions to self-regulate. Uh, and as we discussed, there's more incentive for them to not find fraud than there is to root it out. And, you know, I mean, I, I looked into this uh, last year sometime because I was looking around at, at research and, and how much research gets published every year. And there's something, something in excess of two million papers get published every year. Individuals and even institutions would find it difficult to keep track of all of that and even necessarily be able to find it. So you kind of do need a dedicated organization to probably look into it independently well i guess yeah it is about having those systems in place that kind of the framework to be able to address these issues um see this is where it gets i guess gets complicated um because you know as, as we discussed i think last week with um professor mull that we can't necessarily assume that researchers are doing the wrong thing or distrust them automatically um, no matter where they're from. And that, you know, that applies when we're looking at um, some of these countries that are being touted as the worst offenders, but also in Australia itself. You know, we don't want to assume that everyone is being dishonest. It's a matter of having the appropriate places, approaches in place to, to look for those issues and to make sure that they are um, exposed rather than covered up, you know, by people who have an interest in, in not exposing it. Um, because... You can go too far with this level of distrust, um, and often that is done for reasons that are kind of, well, more political rather than anything else. Um, and this is actually something that I do want to talk about in my next instalment of this investigation. Um, there's a particular name that we've talked about before on the program who has been involved in calls for even stronger oversight of scientific research. And it is something that is, I guess, not justified given the scale of the issue in Australia and is done, like I said, more for political reasons than anything else. Um, yeah, so that is something that I intend to address in future, maybe in a couple of weeks, because I think we have a few other important stories to get to before then. But um, yeah, stay tuned for that. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, I don't know about you, but growing up, I was always a stegosaurus sort of gal. I mean, you know, they're, they're pretty amazing. But coming in a close second is a dinosaur that we all know and love it is Triceratops with the three big horns, the big neck plate. You know, it looked like it could do some serious damage in battle. And, well, the time of the dinosaurs might have been millions of years ago, but at the Melbourne Museum now, it is happening with their new exhibition, Triceratops, Fate of the Dinosaurs featuring the most complete real-life dinosaur skeleton in Australia. So to take us behind the scenes and into the deep past, we have paleontologist from Museums Victoria, PhD researcher, Hazel Richards. Welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Now, I have to ask, is Triceratops the best dinosaur of all time? I am contractually obliged to say that, but I <laughs> honestly do feel that way. They are so supremely cool and iconic and as you said like you ask a kid to name their favorite dinosaur nine times out of ten one of the things that comes out of their mouth is going to be triceratops they're just 
They're so cool. They're so cool. And I don't know if I managed to really capture it in the intro, but, you know, is it that sort of, is it their armory? Is it the fact that they are quite big and they can take on, you know, some of the real sort of higher order predators? What do you think it is about them? Um, definitely the size. I mean, these things were absolutely huge and, you know, in the in the realm of seven, eight metres long, uh, they... Big. Really big. And, I mean, dinosaurs, we think of them being big, but when you stand next to one, as you'll get to if you come to the exhibition, you really appreciate just how gigantic these animals were and how completely unlike any big animals we have alive mm. today. So we know that Triceratops weighed more than, more than two big African elephants. So wow. it's far and away bigger than anything walking the earth that a human would ever see. And like you mentioned, they've just got this uh, incredible arsenal on their head, uh, which in- interestingly probably evolved more as a display structure than anything for direct fighting. Right. Um, it's certainly hard to imagine that they wouldn't have put up a good fight if anyone, you know, came and bothered them. So both the plate on their head and the horns as display potentially. Yeah, well, we can look at animals that are alive today that have horns, things like antelope, sheep, moose, things like that. And for the most part, the horns are for show. You know, mm. it's uh, for the most part, it's males showing off their big, scary horns to intimidate rivals and prevent having to get in a fight. Because really, as a, as a wild animal, the last thing you want to do is get in a fight. Mm. You get in a fight, you get hurt. You know, you might not be able to um, walk around and get food and find mates, and it's really bad for you. So you're going to do everything you can to avoid getting in a fight. And so it's more about looking big and scary so that you don't have to get in that fight. Oh, okay. I get it now. It's all, it's all about um, the, the bravado. Yes, yes. And, I mean, the frill could have been um, multifunctional, both to do with display, so either for intimidating rivals and saying, hey, I'm a big, scary triceratops, get away from me, or for attracting mates. So similar to something mm. like the peacock's tail um, or other colourful structures that we see, especially in birds, um, they're mostly things that evolve under sexual selection and are all about uh, trying to prove that you are um, the most appropriate and eligible bachelor out there. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm just imagining a triceratops with the sort of myriad of colours that a peacock has on its feathers now. Oh, spectacular. How fabulous would that be? <laughs> so cool. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty viable hypothesis. Like one of the really cool things when you see the fossil is you'll notice that on its frill it has these incredible furrows, like this, this network of little gouges in its frill that we think were there for blood vessels. And it's possible that they would have sort of flushed blood through their frill so it changed colour um, <gasps> as a display. So it's obviously extremely difficult to prove, but it's a, it's a working hypothesis that seems pretty plausible. Incredible. Um, well, speaking about the fossil um, in the museum, it is a very complete triceratops uh, fossil, a sort of whole skeleton. Can you tell us about it? Tell us about this incredible specimen and, and how it came to be at the museum by the numbers the specimen is more than 85 percent complete so the only little bits that are missing are a couple of little scraps off the tail and some of the smaller bones in uh its back feet so for the most part when you look at this dinosaur what you're looking at is real fossilized bone all from one individual animal and as you mentioned wow. in the intro that's the only place in australia that you can see a and a mounted dinosaur on display that is this complete The fossil was found in Montana in 2014 by a commercial paleontologist called Craig Pfister. 
And it, the story goes that Craig was wandering up the hill one day a different way than he went every day before that. He was actually digging up a T-Rex nearby. And uh, because of some heavy rainfall that had happened, there'd been a bit of slippage in the size of the, the butte uh, in, in the badlands of Montana. Mm. And he looked down into this little crevice and he could see a little bit of bone sticking out. And he sort of shimmied down this, um, this break in, in, the, in the rock and uh, found that it was the back of a triceratops pelvis. And so he started doing a bit of digging and he saw a bit of a femur, a bit of a tail and uh, had the notion that he was on something good. These are all bits of the skeleton preserved in articulation. That is in position that they would have been when the animal died. And so over the course of two field seasons, two summers, um, him and his team uh, excavated the Triceratops in big plaster jackets and they were taken out uh, on big trucks and later acquired by team in Canada, Dino Lab which we worked with um, as the museum. They were our partners in Canada who prepared right. the specimen, digging it out of the, out of the rock very carefully, mm. often with like dental picks and very, very tiny, delicate tools over the course of two years. Wow. Um, once the bones were prepared out, they were 3D scanned. And uh, of course, all of this was happening in COVID. So wow. us at the museum sitting in our bedrooms, um, talking over Zoom with the <laughs> Canada about our dinosaur. Um, <laughs> They, uh, yeah, were sending us the 3D scans and uh, we were sort of seeing it emerge from the rock uh, day by day. It was a really exciting um, and pretty amazing distraction from all of that COVID drama at the oh, time. That, that sounds like um, it would beat any Netflix series as a distraction. That sounds incredible. And so are, are you, were you getting sort of like piece by piece 3D scans of bits of bone? So you wake up in the morning and you'd have like another bit of vertebrae sitting in your inbox type thing. Literally, yes. So my role as the curatorial research assistant uh, was wrangling all of the 3D data as it was coming out of Canada and trying to come up with, um, well, first we had to put together the jigsaw puzzle because it was coming to us one bit at a time. Mm. We know that we have at least 250 bones um, of this triceratops. So yeah, those 3D data would be coming through and we'd discuss it with the team in Canada and uh, I'd basically plug each bone into the 3D skeleton in my computer and watch it sort of come together. One of the major pieces of work that we did was coming up with the posture for the skeleton. Um, and so by posture, what, what do you mean? So how it was going to be standing. So we wanted, uh, of course, the, 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 the Triceratops is dead, right? It's been dead for 67 million years. Um, <laughs> but we wanted to put it on display mounted in a very lifelike dynamic pose as if the animal was alive uh, today so that you can experience it um, as it would have been in that Cretaceous environment in Montana. So there was a lot of experimentation and fiddling and deciding, you know, how straight are its arms going to be? You know, how do we position its feet? Uh, how curved should the tail be? And all of this was informed, of course, by the fossil itself, which after being in the ground for 67 million years has been slightly crushed and deformed mm. and warped. And the left and right sides of it are really asymmetrical. Like the femur, the, the leg bone, the bone in the top of your leg uh, is the same as in a triceratops. And the one on the left side is 30% longer than the one on the right. So wow. If we put it in a posture where it was just standing sort of in a neutral resting pose, it would be extremely lopsided. So, and it wouldn't have been like that in life. This is a, an artifact of, of the process of fossilization and, and the vast time and pressure and heat that this thing experienced over those 67 million years. And so we came up with a pose that sort of had a, a walking dynamic kind of look to it because it was awesome, but also because 
uh, it helped to disguise this janky short leg. <laughs> so, Hazel, it sounds like, you know, you're a paleontologist. You're not necessarily working in the field. You're working in 3D modelling. Is that a new field of paleontology? I mean, paleontology has been adopting these new digital technologies for basically as long as they've been around. You know, the minute that we were putting humans through CT scanners, there were paleontologists thinking, hmm, I could put a fossil in that machine. <laughs> So uh, the the idea of um, using 3D data of fossils to reconstruct their skeletons and uh, run analyses to try and reconstruct what they would have been like in life um, uh, is not new. We've been doing it for about 20 years. But as the tech gets better and better, you're able to see more and more um, in terms of uh, not only the surface detail, but CT scanning, like basically like a 3D x-ray, you're able to see inside the bones themselves and incredible resolutions as well. So um, almost like 3D microscopy, if you, if you can get a good enough CT scan. So yeah, it's, it's a really exciting field and you get to play with some really cool looking data, which I just love. And uh, it was one of the great um, privileges that we had in deep, deep lockdown, getting to ship some of the Triceratops pieces down the highway to, to Monash University and um, put them through a CT scanner. Uh, and some of the results of that are on display in the exhibition. So you can see things like the 3D model of our Triceratops' brain, which Whoa. we got from 3D scanning, uh, CT scanning um, some of the bones of its skull. Wow. So it, it really paints a much clearer picture of what the animal would have um, would have looked like and the sort of extra organs and layers associated with it when you add this addi- this additional sort of digital infrastructure around it. Yeah, for sure. And it, it re- reveals things that you might not have even imagined were there. So we CT scanned one of the jaw bones and uh, you can see Triceratops is a, a vegetarian dinosaur, a herbivore, and it has this row of uh, very pointed, sharp, almost like scissor-like scissor blade of teeth. Uh, But when you look at the CT data of its jaw, you can see that underneath each of those teeth in its jaw is a stack of replacement teeth waiting to come out. (gasps) And so it was so cool getting to see all of these little growing teeth sitting underneath the surface and imagining this sort of um, conveyor belt of tooth production that these animals had, eating their their abrasive diet and, and wearing down their teeth and just having more and more teeth pop out ready to chew the next twig or whatever is, yeah, just... So awesome. It's like a fossil Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a kinder surprise, putting kinder it back together again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. So um, with this exhibition, I take it you've got, um, you know, there's, it's not just the fossil on display, even though, you know, the fossil's um, a pretty incredible thing to see. It tells a story of, um, you know, 65 to 67 million years ago. Um, what else do, do people see? Well, first of all, you, we immerse you in the world that Triceratops would have inhabited. So you get to meet all of the other weird and wonderful creatures uh, that would have shared their home with Triceratops. Um, other dinosaurs you might have heard of, like Pachycephalosaurus with its dome head, uh, Edmontosaurus, a uh, huge uh, duck-billed dinosaur, and, of course, T-Rex makes an appearance. So um, you can explore this uh, recreated Cretaceous world before you meet Triceratops themselves. Um, in the flesh, so to speak. Um, (laughs) And as I said about the brain, you can explore some of the anatomy of Triceratops and what it tells us about what these animals were like when they were alive and and how and why they might have evolved some of these weird structures that we were talking about. And then you can move on through uh, the rather grim 
um, reality of the extinction of the dinosaurs due to the um, asteroid impact that 66 million years ago um, that nearly obliterated all life on Earth. About 80% of living things died. Um, and so in some ways that makes it even more remarkable that uh, anything at all survived. And the idea is to, to try and get across this idea that uh, this big, robust, scary, strong animal can go extinct. You know, they're, they're, they're not invulnerable and they're mortal like we are. And as you ascend up into the second mezzanine level, um, we present some uh, more little uh, fossils representing all of those great creatures that you met down on the, on the ground floor. Um, and you can explore them in 3D, which is a personal highlight for me. I'm like obviously a big 3D nerd. And that's a really cool interactive that you guys can play with. And then the exhibition finishes uh, in the modern day exploring modern dinosaurs, which are of course birds. And so this is where we um, highlight a few bird species and uh, really showcase how special they are and how worthy of our protection and our care they are. Well, Hazel, it sounds like such an incredible exhibition and uh, your Triceratops knowledge is truly tops. I'm sure you haven't heard that before. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for joining us today and bringing to life this creature that has been extinct for so, so long. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Claire. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost, lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.